All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talking and touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording from Woodstock, New York. So happy to be back with you all. Now, uh, that's after- what an introduction should sound like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, stop it. Welcome back. Thank you. I can't believe you just insulted yourself when I was about to say how great you are. Okay, so hold on. Simmer down. Hold on. Joined as usual, he's already made himself known, joined as usual <laughs> by Mr. Dependable, whether it's a, uh, a little rainstorm or the apocalypse. I think you can count on this guy or something in between, as was the case with me. Um, mm-hmm. Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Oh, hi. Yes. It feels good <laughs> to be recording with someone and with you, of course. <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you for taking over, as you know, but our listeners don't know my uh, pop mm-hmm. passed away very suddenly, and um, which is obviously devastating, but also complicated. And uh, so I've been running back and forth to the city a ton. And hiding under the covers and crying. (laughs) So both those things have been happening. But I want to say that uh, today's guest is the great photographer, Andrea Modica, and I loved talking to her. And it was so Mm -hmm. great to be back in the swing of recording. And I'm really happy to be here with you today. It's such, it's like my, uh, as much as the podcast sometimes stresses me out and I have anxiety about <laughs> about <Yes>. various aspects <laughs> is something I, I love to do and so brings me a lot of joy and so mm-hmm. yeah I'm happy to be back yes um, okay so here's a terrible segue but um <laughs> <laughs> warning warning you know we do love doing the podcast, but it is, as we've said a million times, <laughs> really probably way too many times, uh, that it, it's, you know, it's a lot of work. You were just telling me um, that you spent two hours prepping a guest. Um, <laughs> so this is what happens is that we send equipment to our guests and then yeah. you get in touch with them and you you teach them how to use it. And, and that can yep. be... For some people, they're very tech savvy and it's quick. And for other people, it can be a much longer process. And then some people just want to chat, whatever. So uh, (laughs) I do love chatting with the guests. It's a lot of fun for me. (laughs) You and Tower and I have Zoom meetings at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. And between that, we talk all the time because we're putting together our agenda, guest list, wish list. And then you are reaching out to try and get those guests mm-hmm. and Taylor's putting research together for me. And so it, it's turned into quite a big production. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we're really proud of it. Okay. So all of this to say, people, you got to donate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're not, we're not depending on you. Don't, don't feel, I don't want you to feel um, too much pressure. That's not a fun feeling. I'm happy to say we've actually raised money already from private donors, but... Yes, thank you. 
We are also, I don't know if we're counting on the listeners to donate, but there's something about the amount of really moving mail messages mm-hmm. and emails that we've gotten over the past three years. I mean, I personally get almost one a day, okay? So mm. about how much the podcast has gotten someone back into photographing or just helped them so much or given them a sense of community, on and on and on. You know, I feel, and I know you feel this way too, that this is our listeners' podcast, right? Like it's- Oh, yeah. It's, it's, we're all in this together and we make it, but we really feel the audience. And we know the audience is very active by how many downloads there are, which is well over 100,000. And listen, so with that in mind, I just really urge people to take some ownership and involvement by going on the website and donating 10 or $20. If you want to donate $5, it's really not about the amount of money. I think it would feel good to us if people would do that. Yeah, a little affirmation and... There's a there is an an open box to put in whatever you want. <laughs> right. Yep. Yes. Put in whatever you want, but I think it would feel really good and there are things that we want to do down the line for the community and I don't want this to sound like a threat, but <laughs> <laughs> but it is. We need to know that you're committed and and supportive of this thing we're building. We're not asking you to do anything. We're going to do all the work. We're just asking for a little financial mm-hmm. help. So we know you're there and you're paying attention and you want to be part of this community that we're building. And and that's it. Look, okay, I'm moving on. Well, it's photowork.foundation. Yes, <laughs> photowork.foundation. I, I feel like if anyone from like PBS heard my pitch... They would be they would be groaning, right? Uh, that's everything you're not supposed to do. That's Make your right. audience feel guilty. Oh boy. Oh well. Okay. I apologize if I offended anyone. Doing do, doing the best I can. Hey, um, listen. And if you can't, if you can't, please please keep sending those comments. Though we do love the oh, comments. Oh, absolutely. If, yes. If, for sure. I guess it's just you know. It is really nice to feel like there's a back and forth between us. That's what I was really trying to say very badly. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a lot on my mind. That's right. Well, well, this was really a wonderful episode, I think. What did you think? Oh, absolutely. I've actually known Andrea for, for quite some time. We have a funny connection. Her, I believe, cousin's son coached my son in lacrosse. Uh, oh, my and God. I love Andrea. And I was so happy that you were able to have this show with her. And I learned things I didn't know. And the way Andrea talks about being able to make work without knowing or worrying about whether or not anyone was going to see it, mm-hmm. uh, that was just a wonderful conversation. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's there's so much good stuff. You know, the, the idea of making work and having joy while making work. Uh, yeah, it's just, just a, uh, such a beautiful conversation. And Andrea is, you know, a large format uh, specialist and, and makes mm-hmm. platinum contact prints and I think she's the first guest that I've had on who sort of specializes in in that type of printing. And, you know, we don't get into the chemistry, but we talk about that a bit. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. That had its own challenges as being a woman in the art world. And you have a really good good conversation about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That comes up again. Yep. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Yeah. Well, um, without further ado, um, since I hogged all the <laughs> intro time by guilting our poor audience, <laughs> without further ado, Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. Well, welcome back. And it's my pleasure. Here is your conversation with Andrea Modica. Andrea Modica, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for spending the morning with me. And we'll start how we always do, which is with the guest, just telling us all about your journey, how you got started, where you're from, and where you are now, and all the fun details. So take it away. Wow, that's a that's a big question. I've been around for a while. <laughs> uh, I born and raised in Brooklyn. Went to a state school, SUNY Purchase, uh, which was fantastic. Wait, wait, wait hold mm-hmm. on. What the f? I went to SUNY Purchase. You, really? When? Yeah, yeah. For what? Yes. <laughs> it's really funny that I didn't know that after doing all this research on you. Somehow I missed that. I was blinded by Yale and the Guggenheim. Okay, well, we can talk about that another time, but I will concur that Purchase is an amazing place. Amazing so. <laughs> place, but you have to tell me what you studied there. Well, I studied a lot of things. And for those of us who went to Purchase, that'll make a lot of sense because there was mm-hmm. a lot of freedom, or at least there was. But my degree was in creative writing, literature and creative writing, but I studied I studied photography and a lot of film, and then I went on and studied film at NYU afterwards. But yeah, I studied uh, literature and writing was my was my major. That's what I graduated with. But I took classes with Jed Devine and and Jan Groover. They were there when I was there. So, but also maybe Belle Chevenier and Lee Schlesinger. Yeah, well, Lee, I took of course literature classes with, and I mean my main people were. Bob Stein, Louise Yellen, and, and Lee Schlesinger. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a great place. Yeah. Oh, that's great. We had yeah. them come in. What year did you graduate? Uh, 87. And I will say that I've probably made this joke on the podcast before, but it's actually true, which is that I got called into the dean of students office in my fifth year. And she told me I had to leave, that I had to, <laughs> I had too no. many credits and I couldn't stay any longer. <laughs> Oh, it's and I was like, but I don't place. ever want to leave. I want to live here. I want to be here for the rest of my life. And she was like, I understand, but it's time for you to go out into the world. So that was wow. how much I loved it. Well, okay. So tell me about you at Purchase. Well, I, I discovered art in high school. I was very, very lucky. I had a great art teacher, uh, Len Bellinger. And so I went in to study painting was really interested in concept, conceptual art, uh, as I am mm-hmm. still, and took photography, as so many of us do, because I thought it would be fairly easy. And, of course, <laughs> uh, after the first week, it really was harder than anything else. And, and actually Surprise. more – Exactly. And more, uh, more conceptually based than I, of course, could ever have imagined without having – gotten started making pictures. And that's really what grabbed me, the way the world changed so uh, drastically, but 
to many imperceptibly uh, when it's when it was photographed. So that that really excited me right out of the gate, and again in a very conceptual manner. And it's still it continues to to motivate me. And then I um, continued on to graduate school, etc. So did you uh, major in photography at Purchase? Measured in visual arts, yeah. remember? Yep, I did. <laughs> so I, did. Yeah. Uh, I had to do a thesis, of course. We had to, right. I don't know if they're still doing that, but, um, and I did uh, choose to do a thesis in photography. Okay, yep. And then, yep, so you went on to graduate school. So was it right after purchase that you went to Yale? No, I took some time off, which I think is a good idea. Uh, yep. And I advise my students to do the same. What was it like when you got to Yale? Was that, because I assume, but maybe I'm wrong, tell me, I, I assume that being at Yale felt different than being at Purchase, but maybe maybe not. Well, I was asked to work harder than I thought was physically possible. Mm -hmm. And that really, uh, that wasn't going on for me anyway at Purchase. I thought I was working a lot. I thought I was obsessively working into the night. Um, but Yale was a, a whole different can of worms. And that set the stage for the rest of my life and uh, my, my work ethic. So that was a very good thing. Who were the main people around you, professors well, or people of influence when you were there? I went to study with Richard Benson. Um, I Then uh, the small camera was most popular uh, among the students. I, I was already using a lot. I, I went straight to the big camera at Purchase after one term. Mm -hmm. And as you might recall, one of the great things about that school is there was a lot of equipment to to lend. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I used the 8x10 almost exclusively. And so I went to, to Yale with that camera and also making platinum prints, which I learned from Jed Devine uh, at Purchase. And Jed said, if if you're going to keep if you're going to keep printing like this, then the person you might want to find is Richard Benson. And uh, that's why I applied to Yale. Can you explain uh, that to people who don't know the legacy of of the great Richard Benson? Well, Richard, who was a phenomenal person, generous teacher, brilliant man was also a great printer, maybe the great printer of photography. So I went to study with him, and he was, he was great. Uh, he was fantastic. But my, the work I was doing wasn't really in step with uh, what was popular, I think, at the time. What Again, was using popular? In the small camera. So I didn't even fully understand the influences that many of my colleagues had before they went to Yale, the interests that they had in uh, Winogrand, Frank. Right. So you're talking about 35 millimeter, probably Leicas and people more street style shooting or road photography, that type of thing? Well, handheld, small or medium format. Uh, yes, yes. And in fact, uh, what what was so interesting for me was trying to use the camera, uh, the big camera as much as I could. I was being influenced by what was around me. So mm -hmm. I was using it like a small camera, which was, of course, absurd, but mm -hmm. a great... <laughs> a, 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 and again, it's still something I, I do today, you know, to see how far I can push it. I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's useful to stick with one camera and one lens, and maybe I've overdone it, but I, I still have these decades later. 
So I was, you know, encouraged, let's say, to stop using the big camera. And I kept using it. So there you have it. My first big stubborn move. <laughs> I think it's worked out well for you. Well, you know, I pretty much have done what I want to do. And uh, I don't know where I got that idea. But part of it is that I didn't think, and Yale certainly reinforced this, I didn't think anybody would care. I didn't think anybody would be looking. I didn't mm -hmm. think it would matter. So I, first and foremost, uh, was in it to get up in the morning and want to grab the camera I wanted to grab and do the work I want to do. And I still live that way and I teach that way. I mean, is that, I'm, I'm sort of being goofy and stating the obvious in the form of a question, but you know, how important is it to stay connected to working in a way that you love? Well, I don't, I don't know what else there is because it's a, you know, it, it's a feel that, uh, you know, the likelihood that anybody will look and care is, is pretty low, right? right. Don't yep. you think? Yes, so, I agree. Um, so, so I guess there are really two ways uh, that a young person can go about. One is to see what's going on and try to fit in and be influenced by and such. And the other is to just do the work you want to be doing uh, regardless. And uh, my argument is that you, you go in winning because, you know, nobody can take that joy away from you. I think this is a really, really important point. These are two, you know, really prominent and very different uh, schools of thought. One is the importance of the new and being current and, and, and pushing form and pushing process and showing the world new forms and new ways of working. And the other is what you just said, which is, you know, find what brings you joy because you probably aren't going to become famous anyway and make sure that you love your process. And you know, I think I come down there. I think it's just so important you have one life to live, to love as many minutes of it as you possibly can, because life is, as we know, also extremely difficult, extremely challenging, filled with a lot of loss and sadness. That's just the nature of life. So I think it's, it's so important to be in love with your process. But I understand the other argument as well. I mean, it's the sort of argument of modern art. But you know, I constantly also sort of push back against that because I, I think there's a lot of booby traps in that other way of working. But look, I know really successful photographers who have taken that other way to heart and are constantly just thinking about what they can do differently, show different work. But I don't know if that's head versus heart or what it is. But anyway, I'm hijacking the conversation. Sorry about that. Well, that might be the very thing that gives them joy, by the way. Um, right. But I also don't think that uh, there's such a difference between the new and what gives you pleasure, what they're, the thing that you want to do. At the, you know, if, you, if a photographer, young person I teach, is true to doing what they want to do, it's usually the best work they can do. I've been doing this I agree. for oh, I've been doing this for four decades. I can't tell you how much this has proven true over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, just yesterday I had a, a senior tell me, um, you know, he was a bit embarrassed by this actually. It was our first meeting for the term, in fact our first meeting for the year. And I'll be working very closely with him. And he said, you know, I've 
gotten to the point where I gotta tell you the truth, I gotta be honest, I'm so sorry, but I really don't care what anybody thinks anymore. And I thought, now we will begin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, you know, and then, yeah. I, and then the same day I got an email uh, from a student who sent me work of two prominent photographers, and she said, this is the emotional spirit that I want to capture in my work. I thought, this is really doing things a bit backwards, but right. it's my job to help her do what she wants to do. But I did point out I thought it was backwards. Mm-hmm. You want to explain that a little bit? I want her to find her own right. emotional spirit, <laughs> yes. quote unquote, yep. uh, and not uh, you know find somebody else's. Because by the way, Sasha, that is new. Because only one person has that emotional spirit. What a yes, ridiculous I agree. term! Yay, here, here. But so, so circling back to you saying there's the new and the joy. I'm telling you, it's the joy that brings the next new. Well, I completely agree with that. Believe me, I didn't mean to make them. Um, it's it's what I, there's the tyranny. What I call the tyranny of the new, which is the sort of pressure on artists to always be creating new forms, which I think is almost impossible to do. And then my position, which is, you know, if you do work, just to be corny, but from your heart, or whatever, from your gut, from your, and you stay true to your, what you want to talk about, then it will be new because there's only one you. Exactly right. And it's also the, the great joy of teaching is that you get to see that over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, you, things that you, you can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. No matter how many decades of experience you have making pictures. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about you. So what was your first body of work that, you know, did bring you, you know, some attention that other people were interested in other than you? Well, I suppose it would have to be Treadwell. Mm -hmm. And then for the book, though, that came before Treadwell was Minor League. Right. Even though Treadwell had already begun. So that book, uh, which was put together by Connie Sullivan for the Smithsonian series, uh, Artists at Work, Photographers at Work, that was at first glance going to be Treadwell. And Connie said, no, there's too much work here for this project. So she she saw then the minor league work and, uh, and published that. And uh, then maybe... Th- Maybe three or four years later, maybe sooner, actually, uh, published Treadwell, which was a much bigger book and, you know, bigger run. And you want to tell people what what Treadwell is? At 25, I got a job uh, teaching at another state school, SUNY, up in Oneonta, and I had to learn how to drive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, was used to living in only in cities, traveling around by bicycle and train and bus, all with my 8x10. Now I had a car. In some ways, of course, it was a lot easier. But there were no people around. It was kind of alarming. In 1985, this was. There was no internet, but there certainly was television. And uh, people were inside a lot. So I drove around and drove around and just looked for people to photograph because I'm interested in photographing people. And there was a group of people uh, out in this old farmhouse, and it was uh, this family, a very big family. Twenty-one people were living in the house, and uh, and they and I just stopped and said, "Can I please take some pictures?" And uh, they said yes. 
And then I went and got the 8x10. And one thing led to another. They moved. I had pictures to give them. I defined them. So I photographed them in a new place. They moved again. In, in the 15 years of photographing, they lived in over 30 places, but all in that region. So my backdrop, as, as tough a life as that created for them, my backdrop kept changing. It's a long project. It wasn't meant to be a project. I wasn't project-oriented. I just wanted desperately to take pictures. And they let me. And, uh, and there you have it. You know, that body of work, I think, you know, brought you a certain amount of acclaim. Is that right? Yeah, pretty. I, I you know, I have to say, again, back, circling back to that, uh, the beginning of this conversation, I, I was pretty surprised uh, because I had a job, mind you, a humble income, mm -hmm. but enough. <laughs> uh, and I thought uh, this is better than I had been sleeping uh, for a living at a psychiatric halfway house through graduate school. I, I did that job full-time for three years. So I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty good, you know, this teaching job, which, you know, was a big job, actually. It was a, four days a week and mixing all the chemicals and taking care of the, you know, big job, big out-of-school job. It was a great mm -hmm. job. But it was, you know, not sleeping at a halfway house. I thought I would, you know, was really lucky. Well, I was. I was very lucky. And, oh, my God, Sasha, what was your question? Oh, just, <laughs> about, just about Treadwell's bringing you a certain amount of, of Yeah, so, attention. again, you know, you know, Sasha, that uh, living up there, especially, my goodness, before the Internet, it was really isolating. So that coupled with the belief uh, that nobody would see the work really, uh, like, really opened up the world for me in terms of trying all kinds of things and, you know, sticking with one subject, one family that I, of course, created a relationship with that had nothing to do with photography, but also being challenged in terms of photography because photographing one group of people over and over again, I couldn't keep taking the same picture. So I, I took many, many, as I think the people I admire the most do, many failures. And, and it didn't matter. Uh, I was uh, just obsessed with photographing. And I didn't expect anybody to notice. But I, I had a couple of people uh, in my life early on. One was Lois Connor. Maybe she was uh, really the most important person uh, in terms of... We love my Lois Connor. Yeah, in in every way. I mean, she's my my sister, really. Yeah, fabulous person. Yeah. So you know, very early on, we were introduced when I was still a student. She had gone there some years, a few years before I did, and uh, we were introduced because we, I was kind of getting the same mm, response to using the camera and printing in platinum that Lois had a few years earlier. And one of her colleagues uh, from one of her classmates was one of my teachers. And he said, you got to meet this woman. They were telling her, you know, the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we just became instant friends. But more to the point of your question, she just did so much to help me. And she introduced me to her friend, then fairly unknown Sally Mann. Uh, Sally mm -hmm. and I became <laughs> great friends. And there was this group of um, 
very strong, amazing women with large cameras that mm-hmm. <laughs> came, uh, you know, that are my, you know, my core. And, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was criticized at one point, these words actually happened, of uh, having work that was female. And Mm -hmm. that was not meant in a positive way. It didn't happen a lot, but it happened once and it it stung. And it it made me think about, it makes me think about when I was in college and I took a history photography class, we used Beaumont Newhall. Did you use Beaumont Newhall history photography? Still still have the book. I do too. And I just, I just dug this quote up because I, I, it's, Dung. Um, when he wrote about, there were so few women, of course, is there anybody of color in that book, but so few women. And uh, Julia Margaret Cameron was one. And, and what he wrote, basically, was the portraits, which were primarily portraits of the quote unquote, great man, were, you know, her legacy, her great work, and that uh, the tableau were Quote, this is a quote, dripping in sentimentality. And as an 18, 20-year-old, I understood somehow, even though the class was taught by a man, this was just not mentioned at all, I, I understood that that had something to do with her being a woman. And uh, I, I, never, I never forgot that. And then this thing happened in grad school. And then I found, I, I stumbled upon, luckily, it was Stephen Shear who introduced me to Lois Connor. And uh, I, I found my people. I found, you know, anyway. So I, I can't tell you how many letters, physical letters I have still that begin with Sally Mann recommended I contact you. Lois Connor told me to give you a call, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So so I was very surprised by that. And of course, uh, that opened up the world for me. My first gallery uh, was uh, Lieberman and Saul. And uh, they took a real chance. I was quite young. And Sally encouraged Maria Mars Hamburg to look at the show. Mm-hmm. She bought a couple of pieces for the Met and then ultimately wrote uh, the introduction for Treadwell. So one thing leads to another, but uh, I, I love men, uh, but have I mentioned one in my story yet, except for Richard Benson, of course. And there have been many, but the it's this group of women that have really, uh, you know, helped me and without my asking, I must be frank. Yeah. So I was surprised and pleased and having fun and yeah, but it changed things. No question about it. I was no longer working in a vacuum upstate New York and and there was something joyful about that that mm-hmm. changed. Mm-hmm. People who are starting out today, they're never working in a vacuum. I, I, I feel sorry for them actually because I I think there's something great about being disconnected and as a photographer where, you know, our clay is the world, just being in the moment in the world. And not being distracted by yeah. how people are responding to each picture you make and yeah, yes, practically and, and also, in real time. Right, and, and exactly right. And having, of course, the 8x10 still demands that I take time to process the film and wait for it to dry you know, before I can even look at it. Mm-hmm. So that's something I still value a lot. And I, you know, I'm, I work regularly in the darkroom in the winter. I'm in the thick of it right now. And mm-hmm. it's, it's heaven. I mean, it's just 
fantastic that there's no phone in there. It's and you, just great. You make platinum contact prints. Is, I do. Let's talk about that because you know we're also living in a time where there's a lot of debate, for better or worse, about the importance of the object, and obviously. You know, you can't get more object-oriented than a uh, platinum contact print. So, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts about that, about the object and its importance, and also for someone who makes a lot of books, then how does that translate? That, that, um, a lot of parts of that uh, question. But I, in, the, in the beginning, uh, when I was uh, making platinum prints and started to uh, get some attention for Treadwell and having shows and such. I'd see occasionally my work printed in newsprint, which I guess would be the equivalent of looking at it on a telephone right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember, you know, in my 20s saying, you know, if this picture doesn't work in newsprint, it's not a good picture. It, right. needs, to be, it needs to be shredded. So I still think that, of course, you know, an image should be able to translate in different media. Yeah. But... I love holding a beautiful object. I'm yep. still a still a sucker for beautiful print, and yeah, me too. probably probably more importantly, I I, I really uh, I'm still obsessed with making them, and I still get excited. the The platinum, I, I don't know how a negative is going to translate, even after all these decades. And I'm good. I, I'm 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 a good printer, but I I like to hand it over. The meaning of the photograph handed over to the printing process a little bit of it and continue to be surprised by that. So that if a print comes out a little dark, that you know, the, the, the meaning changes, of course. And that that interests me and that can still surprise me. So I I I I like getting things a little wrong and learning from that and then taking it from there. You see? Yeah. So the Making a print by hand, one at a time, it still provides that for me. Uh, it still surprises and delights and teaches me. Well, even on your website, the uh, you can really get lost in the individual images. I mean, they're the the sort of um, tonal range is is mind boggling and just so stunning. Oh, thank you. Sometime I'm just going to have to make a pilgrimage to you so I can. Get, get, I, get you drunk, and then you'll let me go through boxes of prints. I, I've, I've had somebody here doing that, and it's, it's, it's actually it's fun because like the printing process, he's seeing things I would see and making connections of mm-hmm. my work from mm-hmm. the first pictures I made a purchase, which is kind of a, a mind-boggling, but again, teaching me. Um, so, Sasha, I would love that. Please come Oh, my God. Here. Can I? You know, um, would you please? Yes. Are you kidding? Oh, my God. It's like I my, mean, <laughs> that's my dream. I, it's like, I always think, you know, getting invited to a great photographer's home to look through those fantastic boxes of, of prints that they have is like, you know, the equivalent of being a deep sea diver who's looking for buried treasure, except, you know, of course, it's not buried. But for me, it's like, it's just so thrilling. It's it's the most exciting, thrilling experience. I mean, I remember when I first met Barbara Bosworth, who I, I work with now, but, you know, going to her studio and 
opening up boxes and she has a lot of contact prints also, but just, you know, my head exploded. I mean, it was just so overwhelming. Just the, the, the joy, the amount of joy was just staggering. Thank you for saying those nice things. And Barbara is great. Another view camera woman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, you, can I point out that these women, Lois, least of all, but in general, using the view camera in ways that we were not really taught to use the view mm -hmm. camera. Mm -hmm. You know, sharpness is not everything. Yep. Just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Barbara, great photographer. And uh, again, view camera. So um, please come. Because, okay. I, you know, be you, in fact, if you want to scrap all this so far and just start over with prints in front of us, it might make more sense. Well, that will just be uh, number two. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you and Barbara, you have some commonalities. There's there's a certain, in some of your work, not in all of your work, but in some of your work, you know, in some of, of Treadwell and, and other work, there is that very poetic expression in the image that's created by emotion and a looseness. And as you said, not everything's sharp and that informs one's response to the picture. And I, I, I thank you for putting us in the same sentence. I, I, I don't know Barbara that well. I have met her and I, she's wonderful, but I know her yeah, work lovely. really well. And I, so I, I, I won't speak for her, but I will say that I've had the privilege of looking at the outtakes of some of these other women I've mentioned. And you mentioned looseness. I mean, the thing that goes hand in hand with that, I, I'm going to say this again, are, you know, a lot of pictures that are not very good. You, we don't see them, hopefully, you know. Uh, they're in a stat, they're a stack of outtakes. Uh, you see my point? So that looseness, I think, um, you know, can provide us as practitioners with more surprises. Yeah. And I, that's really the addiction, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I I always, you know, think of those pictures as, you know, a sketch. It's a certain amount of of, you know, playing around and just letting yourself go and using your intuition and having faith. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. So let's talk about your new work, which I'm not going to try and pronounce because it would be embarrassing, <laughs> but let's talk about the new book which you can tell us about. Well, I've been working for eight years at a horse clinic in Italy, uh, outside of Bologna, and photographing horses in recovery after operations. And because I've been doing it for so long, or had been doing it for so long, I figured out things to keep me interested in between the operations. So I started photographing the tools uh, as well as the tools before and the tools after, as well as then this last facet of the work uh, are these phantoms that are devices used to stand in for mares when sperm is collected for reproductive purposes. How's that for a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, summing, it's... Summing it up. Um, and this book was published by TIS. Yes. It's a beautiful book. They did an amazing me. job. Oh, my goodness. My first fold-outs yeah. in my life. Yeah, they're gorgeous. 
It works really, really well. And Carl Woolley did the design. Uh, TIS is uh, Nelson Chan and Carl Woolley. Yep. And Nelson was the production person for mm-hmm. books at Aperture. So that's right. You know, I really had, uh, goodness, a, a great, great pair of people. Yeah, they're doing great work. Me. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I noticed with your various portfolios of work is that, you know, some of them are like Treadwell and other work that's sort of more, you know, we have to find our way in. It's not as specific. It's not as clear. And then some of your bodies of work are extremely specific, like this new body of work and like the portfolio you did, Pandemic Boxes. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Human Being? Because it probably started there, the, yep. uh, the skulls yep. from the mental hospital. Yeah. Which are, <laughs> I mean, again, it's it, they're really spectacular, even on the computer. It's really crazy. But yeah, I'm interested in that as a concept, the sort of going back and forth between the sort of more Ethereals is not the right word, I can't come up with the right word. And these very specific bodies of work that may, you may lose some. Well, I, I, you know, I guess you could think of that either way. But I was thinking you might lose some viewers with some of this very specific work if it's just not for them. I mean, does that cross your mind? Do you care? Oh, my goodness. I can't even imagine how many viewers I never would have with Treadwell, for goodness sake. Right. For the opposite yeah. reason. Right. So no, that's I, true. You know, I mean, that book got its share of criticism. So I, you know, I don't know. i got to say, I don't think about that. Yeah. Not thinking about that. I, I, you know, the, I do think that, um, you know, there is, though, a, a thread through maybe starting with Minor League, of this almost scientific, you know, view of a subject, but mm-hmm. also, uh, you know, coming to terms with it. That was, you know, I was young, straight woman looking at these very gorgeous men who were kind of exhibiting some things that were uncomfortable for me. This is um, this is the minor league Yankees. Yeah, right? I'm going to so. believe me. I'm going to get back to this new work. So, uh, so there's that. Then there is January 1, which are the mummers, which are mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. who dress as women. And also, quite like the baseball players, they're like, there's something very kind of fun about what they're doing. It's a party. You know, these guys, the baseball players, of course, are playing a game. And yet there is a display there of, um, Speaking of the mummers, let's just say, again, some scary behavior Mm -hmm. for me. And uh, then I find myself in an operating room watching horses, these very spectacular, uh, you know, very, very valuable horses in their most vulnerable state. So there's something, this work, I think, is, is not really about the horses. You know, I mean, it's really being on the other side of middle age for me. That's what I think it, it, that exploration was. At the time, can I tell you? No. I can never talk about it while I'm in the middle of making it. But looking at it at this point, I understand it's about these magnificent, 
beings being like cut down to their most vulnerable. When I mm-hmm. started that project uh, at, in my early 50s, I'd never had an operation, I, but I, I didn't think much about it. But this had me thinking about all that. You know, a horse would come in designated to have one leg worked on a knee, and the surgeon would say, hey, he's limping on the other side. Let's do another x-ray. Sure enough, the doctor sent the horse in with the, the wrong leg to be operated on paper. The mm-hmm. surgeon caught it just by looking, by being observant. Those things happen to us, of course. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm just I'm, I'm looking looking closely at that. That's what I think it's about in the end. And like the baseball players, the skulls, the mummers, there is a certain amount of beauty to the presentation, which is important to the meaning of the picture. It's it's first of all, I simply like making. And looking at these beautiful prints, as we've already established, but it's a seductive device, uh, I suppose, to uh, maybe <laughs> maybe I'll get a little bit more of an audience with that. But yeah, I didn't think about that, losing the audience. I well, don't know that I, I mean, who, who is the audience? Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the, the January 1st project, The Mummers, is very frightening, I mean, that I found the pictures, I find the pictures intimidating. Or I should say, I find the people in the pictures intimidating. That's it's sort of really disquieting. And I understand what you're saying. I mean, the pictures are so beautiful. The images are so beautiful that you get locked in. But for me personally, I got locked into a space that was un- an uncomfortable space. So mission accomplished. Although my mission was as a newcomer to Philadelphia was to explore my new city. That mm-hmm. was my mission. So what was accomplished was not my mission. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Getting back to that point about being in the world and not in my head. So are you often photographing things that make you uncomfortable? You know, it's starting to seem that way, isn't it now? Yeah. I mean, is it a way of coming to terms with things, to be more comfortable, to to push yourself into mm. into these spaces where you have to, maybe you'll find out that they're not as scary or maybe they will be as scary, but you'll survive? Maybe all of the above, redeeming qualities, but also, you know, some kind of Sontagian ownership, you know, mm-hmm. control over, you know, if I, thought, if I look this thing in the eye, yeah, maybe it's not going to kill me. I, and if I can contain it in this rectangle and make a beautiful print of it, maybe in some way it's, it's mine. And it's not something out there that is going to, I mean, obviously. Like the boogeyman. I, I mean, obviously, I am going to die, but um, <laughs> find it as much as I can. Yeah. Do you think the large format camera gives you a kind of like superpower, a sort of strength, like at least there's something between you and this thing that may be intimidating or possibly threatening? Oh, there's a few things about that. Okay. One is that it's, you know, it's just something to pay attention to if, <laughs> if what, what is beyond the camera is too much. 
um, mm-hmm. for me to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's also um, conceptually endlessly interesting to me what people, and I can come back to the horses with this because, of course, they're not people, but what people do in front of that big camera and what they and and how that has changed over the decades of my becoming an older woman from a very young woman and how i'm looking at the world differently and the world is looking differently at me that all affects the meaning of the picture mm-hmm. and i i believe that uh, of course when the process is slowed down with a view camera uh, that stuff is accentuated because it's it's present. It's more than accentuated. It's present in a way that if you're using a small camera and invisible, of course, it's not present, that mm-hmm. kind of interaction. Mm-hmm. that That is very much a conceptual point uh, to the work, in fact. So, you know, there really is no possibility of making anything that resembles a document. Now, with the horses, I had five to ten minutes to take those pictures. So that was almost a uh, an athletic feat that I found really compelling. You know how it is. You do something, you want to do the next thing that's going to be difficult. It was really the stupidest camera to use for that work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I was. it would take me sometimes ten minutes to, to set up the picture uh, after they moved the horse in. And then, uh, you know, he'd start moving a little ear, and the anesthesiologist would sa- slam close the doors. So there was a heightened adrenaline uh, mm-hmm. rush mm-hmm. for me. Of course, the horse didn't know anything about this. So that's not part of the, the concept of the work. But it definitely, uh, I think that, you know, everything feeds the the meaning of the work. So I think there's something of that adrenaline in that work that wouldn't be there in some ways, it's the stupidest camera on earth to use, uh, but uh, it's it's also the perfect camera. Well, it's definitely the perfect camera for you. So I think we'll end on that note. Andrea, thank you so much for doing this with me. I, I'm so appreciative. I'm such a big fan of yours and... You know, Sasha, just come down here with a, you know, we'll open up a bottle and have some fun looking at work and okay. talking more. No, it's, it, it's happening. Um, <laughs> Thank it's happening. You. So that will be a great treat. And then you will have to come to the Airstream and sit in front of the fireplace and hang out with me here. So that would be great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and be well. And I'll, uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 